My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Hirut Milaku and Rachel Zellers. When harm happens, what do you do? When someone you know is abused by a partner or sexually assaulted, what do you do? And when you find out that someone you know has harmed someone, has assaulted, has harassed, has abused, what do you do? There are a whole set of dominant ways that we're expected to respond to these sorts of harm. Some of these are grounded in rape culture and involve silence and avoidance and disbelief of those who have been harmed, especially women, as well as defense of those who have been violent, especially men, and a general normalization of harm. Other kinds of dominant responses have to do with seeking action from formal organizations and institutions. There might be community organizations that work to respond to a particular kind of harm. There are medical clinics and hospitals that can respond to physical injury. And of course, when someone engages in some behavior that breaks the law, we're expected to go to the police and to bring what has happened into the purview of the criminal legal system. Hirut Melaku and Rachel Zellers are members of the Third Eye Collective, a grassroots group of black women in Montreal who are, quote, dedicated to healing from and organizing against sexual, gender-based, intimate partner, and state and institutional violence, as well as incest, end quote. Their aim is to do so in a way that prioritizes black women survivors and that rejects many of the dominant approaches for responding to harm in favor of a transformative justice approach. The Third Eye Collective got its start in 2013 when Malaku approached Zellers and told her about her experience of being raped by a prominent man within Montreal's black community and asked for her support. This led to many more conversations among the women who went on to form the collective, both specifically about how best to support Malaku, but also about how they wanted to deal with gender-based and sexual violence more generally. A transformative justice approach attempts to address harm through working collectively in community. It means, for one thing, rejecting the scripts that would normalize and encourage silence about gendered and sexual violence. It means seeking healing, change, and accountability while refusing to render people disposable. And it means recognizing that many of the institutions that we are taught to turn to when harm occurs actually cause a great deal of harm themselves, especially to black people and black communities. In other words, cops, courts, and other state institutions do great harm to black people in North America, so transformative justice means seeking other ways to respond to harm when possible. It can mean formal accountability processes within communities, which aim to hold the person who has caused harm accountable and to create space for genuine healing. It can mean a whole range of informal practices of care and support, of speaking out and walking with, of strategizing about safety plans and intervening in community and institutional spaces. For Malaku and Zellers, among all of these other things, it has also meant working collectively with other black women, working hard to be accountable to each other, and prioritizing the self-determination of those who have been harmed. Transformative justice is not an easy path. 
It is not unusual for there to be resistance within communities to transformative justice efforts, including from erstwhile political allies. Though there have been growing spaces of experimentation and discussion focused on transformative justice across North America in the last two decades, and some brilliant theorizing primarily by black women, indigenous women, and women of color, there is no readily available, easily applied formula. And it requires relentlessly facing head-on, naming, and dealing with kinds of harm that are tragically common and deeply woven through life, which is inevitably hard. Yet for the members of the Third Eye Collective, it is a necessary part of any genuinely liberatory politics, and they see within it a powerful potential to transform lives and communities. I speak with Malaku and Zellers about transformative justice and about the Third Eye Collective. My name is Rachel Zellers. I am a professor, a community worker, and organizer, and mother. I've lived in Montreal for the last 15 years and moved here after I finished law school in Los Angeles. And so Montreal has really been my home community for the last 15 years that I've been able to work and study and organize in. And I'm here with Malaku. I am a consultant in pregnancy and infant feeding with a focus on reproductive justice. I lived in Montreal and recently moved to Toronto. I'm very much interested in intergenerational trauma and how violence plays out within the Black community and the impact of survivors' experience, survivors of sexual assault, and how their experience of trauma is passed on to their babies and the work that we need to do to counter that experience. The Third Eye Collective began organizing in 2013 and I'll let Heirut share a bit more detail, but we began meeting at my kitchen table with a number of other trusted community members, other women in our community, to begin talking about how we wanted to deal with gender-based violence and sexual violence in ways that did not always or seldom involve the police or other state-based institutions and also decide how we, as a small community of women, wanted to think about and practice accountability when those harms occurred. When we began, one of the most important things to us was thinking about and practicing the ideas of accountability in our relationship as women who were coming together to support one another and support other women in our community, we knew immediately that we needed to talk and spend some time talking about and practicing very particular kinds of accountability to one another. The idea was and continues to be a recognition that when harm is done, it's often people whom we know. And we chose specifically to deal with the Black community and supporting Black women who are survivors of violence. And that's at the individual all the way up to state-level violence. And as a Black person, going to the police or going through the judicial system is a place of violence. And so for a victim going through that process to address harm that's been done is not an option. And so as a collective, we were trying to figure out like what are the other options of addressing harm and bringing people to account. So we've been 
exploring and practicing and trying to figure out what this would be like at the individual level and also at the community level, whether it's through holding circles of accountability process, you know, and exploring transformative justice. I approached Rachel five years ago when we first started this because I needed support in figuring out how to coexist with the man who raised me and who was part of our very small community. I didn't have the tools and I needed someone to help me figure out, put together and plans. I can't go too much in detail about it, but the idea was just it emerged out of my personal need for support to address the rape that I had experienced and how to navigate in part the social network as well as the day-to-day establishing boundaries. I came into this work a long time ago. When I was in college, one of my very closest friends, who was a graduate student at my university at the time, was arrested on a rape charge. And I organized with his girlfriend at the time to support him. And as time went on and the case moved forward, he was charged with multi-rapes and turned out to be a serial rapist in the Baltimore, D.C. metropolitan area. And it forced me to reckon with things that I didn't have language or even an emotional skill set to deal with. And I think that really started a process for me of asking these questions about what do we do when people that we love and care for do indeed commit harm, even through language of denial. How do we come to believe when women say this happened to me, even when, you know, the person alleged of harm insists that it's not true? How do we believe Black women in particular, given the incredibly important historical context of Black women over hundreds of years thought of in history, written about in history as rapists, as liars, as oversexed, excessive bodied, you know, human beings? How do we come to believe against all of the stuff we're working against? What kind of communities do we want to be in together? And then most importantly, when a harm does occur, you know, are there times when prison is really viable and the right thing? But most importantly, what are other ways that we can think about reckoning with harm? How do we want to deal with harms that happen, you know, closest to home, in homes, in beloved relationships and in our communities? So when I met Heyroot, when she approached me and shared her story and asked for help, it became, for me, this unflinching, well, yes, of course, let's think about this together. Let's talk about this together. And that conversation has just never stopped. I'll say one other thing. What, again, for the second time in my life, made Heyroot's story so important is that her story began with a man that I knew who I considered a mentor again, who was being charged or accused of rape. And I knew that it was my responsibility, my need to really listen and think with Heyroot about how to best support her and how to better support our community to support Heyroot. When I came forward, it was very much the individual need to manage the stress of it. But also my own personal ideology was like, I didn't want to see this man whom I knew intimately for many years to be incarcerated. I wanted him healed and not punished. And at the time, I was not familiar with transformative justice. I hadn't really seen examples around me of how to hold people into account when they've harmed in such a violent manner. And it was like a prominent Black man. So there were many layers to this experience. 
But even though he refused to come and participate at the accountability circle, the experience for me was that, oh, there is a different way of doing this work. So even if for myself it wasn't successful because this individual refuses to participate, we can envision a different society that's more in line with my idea of what Black liberation is and what liberation is for all of us. And that's what I would say in terms of my personal takeaway is that when we're speaking about envisioning a different world, a different society, it's through living it and it's through practicing it. It's through failing or like one step forward, two steps back, but experimenting. And that has been healing for me because the power comes back to me to deal with this world in a better way, in a healthier way. And to go beyond the binary of good and bad individuals and try to address the other issues and look for healing ultimately. I mean, that's at the end of the day what I'm interested in. Like, how do we heal individually and collectively? Is there anything else that you feel able to say about that initial attempt to create an accountability process? And how did the collective transition into activities beyond that initial focus? When we speak of accountability process, it's actually a process that lasts years. So while supporting me, we also started doing activities, whether it's workshops or presenting at conferences and really building things at the grassroots level and connecting with other Black women here in Montreal and across North America as well. I think it's really important that the accountability process that we began with you, Heyroot, five or six years ago is one that's ongoing. And it's ongoing because of the resistance that we've encountered from other community members who've really swarmed in to support this person and also his own resistance, ongoing resistance. So, you know, accountability processes, which are formal processes, it's very different from, you know, trying to practice accountability when the person who's harmed refuses to be accountable. But I do see that as an ongoing process and not a formal process, but an ongoing relationship that we have both to one another and to this community here in Montreal. Certainly teaching at McGill, one of the things that I found around the same time were just the number of Black women who would find a way outside of the classroom to say, hey, my friend or I need support or there's a Black woman in my life who needs this kind of support or this happened to me. I'm really struggling here academically. There was just an unceasing wave of women coming to me more than I could ever individually support. But nonetheless, it made me feel all the time that our work just had to continue and that we had to find small scale ways of supporting folks, but also simultaneously thinking about how to gently scale up our work a bit because the capacity that we had was just tapped out very quickly. There's always the relationship of capacity attached to this work needing to be done on a small scale where relationships get deep and trust relationships are built. And I think a real reckoning with the fact that it can't be scaled up into a not-for-profit structure given the intimacy of the work. Where our work has also grown is into supporting single mamas and women with children who are living with deeply traumatic histories of childhood sexual violence or partnership violence 
and have these compounded conditions in their lives, you know, poverty, strained family relationships, isolation, the stress of single parenting, you know, no income and inability to work, mental illness, where we've just had to build a beautiful web of understanding around what it means to support an individual like that. And I don't even think that we imagined that when we began. But it's also made us aware, again, of how tremendous the need is. I often think, you know, for this one or two or three women we have in our lives that we provide ongoing support to, there's like hundreds more who we know. I see how it has weaved with my work as a doula and as a lactation consultant where Mm -hmm. we're supporting mothers who are trying to figure out how to co-parent with the men who's raped them and how to navigate family court and the whole process. And at the same time, living with PTSD and trying to be present for their children and putting together safety plans, whether we're speaking about physical safety plans where we've had to intervene or psychological safety plans in terms of like coaching the moms in order to continue interacting with the father of their children where the violence hasn't stopped even though the relationship has ended. I think our presence and being able to name it is powerful for the woman we support. What else do those practices of care and support and mutual accountability look like with the women in your circle? The care that I've received from Rachel and the other woman we work with has been instrumental. And I say that because there's so little of that. My other experience has been that the woman whom I've approached hasn't been interested in jumping in and providing me the care and the support. And I have my theories in it, and part of it is like there is so much trauma that people haven't addressed in their own lives that it becomes a little bit daring for me to be able to speak out in public and ask for this as if I'm asking special accommodation versus it's common enough. And the other issue of wanting to protect Black men, so we're dealing with patriarchy and wanting to protect this quote-unquote respectable Black men means that they cannot be present to support me. And so the unconditional love and support that I've received from Rachel and Delise has been instrumental in terms of me being able to find my footing in order to be stronger and practice my politics and be involved again in the community and at the wider level and live my life truthfully. So I would say that's what the support has meant for me. I guess I can speak to practices a bit. In the very first month of meeting together, I remember saying out loud, for reasons I don't even remember, look, if we're going to do this together, we're going to have to really learn to trust each other because it means so much to come forward in small communities and name very beloved people as doing harm. The costs are so, so high for those of us that live in smaller and work in insular communities that I need us to take some time to build our trust bonds. And I need us to think of and find ways to own errors and come back to one another when we make mistakes. Over the years, we have made mistakes. I'm thinking now that one of the women that we love and organize with used our name and our organizing knowledge in a way that we didn't approve of in the context of an accountability process that was just all awry and all wrong. 
And so we were able to say, hey, we're angry about this because we feel this boundary was crossed. And so that was an important opportunity for this person that we love very much to say, you know, you're right, I'm sorry, and find a way to come back to one another and also acknowledge that, you know, some trust was broken and that it would be okay if we took time to fortify it and to build it again. That's just one, I think, living example, but the work of that example and a few others has taught us to be very clear about how to bring people back in. The step of bringing people back in when there's a transgression or an error or a mess up and when someone absolutely can't be brought back in. We've also gotten really clear about that. I feel like I want to speak to much more pragmatic examples, but it's often hard We talk often in transformative justice as work that starts at the smallest scale at home, work that often is aligned with abolition work and prison abolition politics. We often talk about people not being disposable, whether it's a person who's harmed in the context of gender-based violence or someone who's harmed within our circle. But what that principle has taught us is that there are times when people are not safe enough to be in a circle or cannot simply be in right relation with community because of their particular unwillingness. And the consequence has to be distance. I've learned to really understand what it means, I guess, to be in right relation to the women I organize with and community as well. What has it been like in the years that you've been doing this work, navigating the resistance that you mentioned facing in the community? In my particular example, the rape happened and deal with it in a specific way. But there have been so many other secondary traumas in terms of how people's denial of my experience, for instance, or wanting me to be quiet or saying things like, oh, but he didn't do that to me. He's a friend or trying to silence our work. There's a lot of lateral violence and people gossiping and calling us bullies just because we speak up. The risk associated with truth-telling is very real. If people are not ready to hear it, they resist, they fight back. And we're turned into where we're the villains, we're the bullies. The amount of energy that people have taken standing against us and organizing when you compare a parallel to how they responded to these other individuals who've harmed, it's night and day. They either say nothing or they protect them. So it just makes me question a lot around like the disposability of Black women and Black women's labor, even though the work that we do benefits everyone. Violence thrives in silence. And so if we're speaking up, then we're threatening. It's something that I'm still trying to grapple with the threat that we supposedly pose, and we do nothing other than hold space and speak up. My early political and intellectual traditions were grounded in Black radical thinking from the late 60s. You know, like I was a student of the Black Panther Party. I was most attracted to Black radical politics that came out of the Black power movement, and then also the ways that that lineage was connecting to other events around the world. And so one of the things that I've thought about endlessly since the early 90s is how those politics and intellectual traditions have shaped my thinking and way of being in the world, but simultaneously have always reminded me of the tremendous contradictions pertaining to gender violence living in them. 
I remember being a student at Howard University, Elaine Brown, who was, you know, former head of the Black Panther Party, wrote this book called Taste of Power. I remember her visit to the university when the book came out, speaking about the kind of violence that she faced inside of the Black Panther Party. And I remember how many well-known political figures attacked her publicly, called her a slut and a liar and a CIA agent. And I just never forgot that. So one of the things that's endlessly helpful for me is this logic of yes and. Yes, that's the political and intellectual tradition that raised me. And I know that it's right with all of the contradictions that I've seen a millionfold in the last 25 years of my life. And I'm just going to keep pushing against it because now we have enough elder figures from those traditions coming to us and saying, you're right. We are sorry. Now there's other stuff too, but it's one of the things that keeps me, I guess, going. I know that it's the right thing to do to speak up. And I know the cost of silence because it runs through my genealogy and my family tree. And I know how incest and childhood sexual violence is weaponized within families because I've seen it and lived it. And I have this tradition, this beloved tradition of learning that has shown me all of its contradictions over the last 25 years. And it's so hard to live with that yes and way of being in the world. But I would rather think about and talk about ways that we can like grab onto that way of thinking, like as the right way, like that yes and all of that and all the brilliance in that and all of the contradictions too. You mentioned earlier that the nature of this work means you can't scale it up by, you know, creating a nonprofit and applying for grants, that sort of thing. What have you learned over your time doing it about how it might be possible to scale it up or to maybe point towards a different way of thinking about it to proliferate it, for example? We as a whole society need to think around this conversation. I think, for example, of how we think about accessibility issues, for instance. What if communities organizations start thinking about survivor-centered methods of doing the work in a sense of like recognizing that at any given time, there'll be a survivor in the room? And what would the needs of that survivor might be? And if there's a survivor, it means that chances are there's also someone who has harmed and a harm can take place at the event or, you know. So how do we get people and communities to just start to think about the possibilities of these happening and how to have these conversations and be better prepared to address it in a healthier way beyond telling people, go make a complaint to the cops? How do we provide the tools for people to be ready to act in a healthy way to support one another instead of, you know, disengaging completely or turning around and pretending it doesn't exist? Interventions are needed and healthier interventions. So more and more, I've been thinking like, okay, at the organizational level, what are the steps that people can take to hold these accountability circles, to have better conversations around harm? And what does it actually mean to have a survivor-centered approach? You have been listening to my interview with Hirut Malaku and Rachel Zellers of the Third Eye Collective. To learn more about their work, go to thirdeyecollective.wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.